0: together at an event and dinner was going to be provided and at dinner time pizzas were brought out for everyone but it was quickly evident that there was not going to be enough for everyone to have their fill. so when they realized this some people started taking extra slices because it seemed there wasn't going to be enough as there wasn't to make sure that they wouldn't go hungry when others realized of the shortage they took fewer slices than they would have otherwise for the exact same reason, because it seemed like there wasn't gonna be enough for everyone. They had a different mindset. It's not hard to see which of these two groups behaved more like Christians. The first group could perhaps say that they had the right to take their fill, They paid their uh, fee, they had bought their tickets, and they were gonna get their money's worth. But we would all acknowledge, I think, that the group that showed consideration and restraint displayed the nobler action. Perhaps people were accusing him of abusing his uh, power and uh, his status, and after a lengthy explanation where he makes clear that he has some very legitimate rights, he says this. He says, nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Now, he shows this same kind of attitude in other places too, in First Corinthians 8, He writes that in regard to people being potentially scandalized by him eating meat that's been offered to idols, he says he would rather not eat meat at all rather than put a stumbling block in the way of other people. He would not make use of that right to eat meat. He would even give up the right to his own salvation. And he writes in Romans 9 that when speaking about the Jews who have rejected Christ, he says he wishes that he himself was accursed if that would mean that they could be saved, right? So we see this attitude in St. Paul. This is very different to the attitude that I believe we find in today's society when it comes to rights. What do we hear about these days in in our country now in the 21st century? We hear, stand up for your rights. We hear, don't get pushed around. We hear, assert your independence. Express your opinion, whether it's been asked for or not. Get your voice out there. And even our entire schooling system is set up in terms of being ranked against every other student. So you better take the top spot or someone else will. In the dystopian book and movie series, The Hunger Games, young people are forced to fight against each other in gladiatorial style combat. And at at the beginning of each round of fighting, all these weapons are placed in a central location. And if you're stronger, and if you're faster, you'll get to the weapons first. And if you're slower or you're weaker, you just won't, and it's bad luck for you. That's not a bad metaphor for our society today, where there's aggressive competition for jobs, for houses, for market shares, for bids on eBay, for places in schools. Our society favors those and celebrates those who can take and who can make full use of their rights. We don't hear so much about our obligations, about giving in to others out of love, of not taking full advantage of what we could do otherwise, as Saint Paul writes about. But it's not just him who shows this. We see this in Christ himself. And I think that sometimes we take for granted the kind of life that Jesus lived. He had the right to be born in a palace with the entire population of Bethlehem, Judea, and even the entire world on their faces in silence at the moment of his birth, but he didn't take this right. He had the right to a life of comfort and wealth, but he didn't take this right. What, we, what do we hear of the kind of life that he lived? He said, foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. He had the right to come riding into Jerusalem on the wings of the cherubim, rather than on a donkey, but he chose not to. He had the right to call down 12 legions of angels, as he tells Saint Peter, to terrify his enemies and scatter them away, but he didn't do so, that's recorded in Matthew 26. He had the right, finally, to be enthroned on a throne of gold, but he didn't take this right, choosing rather to be mounted on a cross. He allows himself to be stripped of any rights, and in this action brings healing to all of humanity. So we who follow in his footsteps cannot progress in the spiritual life unless in some way we also are not pursuing our rights to the fullest, unless we display a willing powerlessness, right? Not Nietzsche's will to power, but a will to powerlessness. Paradoxically though, in this willing renunciation of pursuing our rights is where we actually find our freedom. Saint uh, Sophrony of Essex explains it this way. He says, the Christian is the most defenseless creature, under attack from all sides. The Christian is the slave of all, and as it were, the offscouring of all things. Whereas at the same time, he and only he is free and inviolable in the deepest and fullest sense of the word. We understand a bit more, I think, what Christ means when He says that whoever will save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And what we see here as well is the quality of meekness, that it's not being weak, but it's about willingly giving up one's strength. And if the meek will inherit the earth, it's not because they have taken it by force, but because of of how paradoxically, in relinquishing anything, they have grasped it all. Now, not only does Christ give us the example, but He commands this of us too. And we read in the Sermon on on the Mount, in Matthew chapter five, He says, "'You have heard that it was said, "'an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. "'But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil.'" Let's just stop right there. Don't resist an evil person. Isn't resisting evil what we're supposed to be doing? We find this hard because we think that evil people are the ones that we should be resisting the most. We might be happy to give in to someone we love, right? To someone who is adorable, someone who's kind. What was that, sweetie? You wanna eat at a different restaurant than the one I organized? Sure. What was that, honey? You want to watch a different movie than the one that I had planned? That's fine. We're happy to do it for the people that we love. But we don't want to do that for someone we don't like, someone who's rude, impatient, selfish, malicious. But Christ goes on. He says, if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. If anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, Go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. And it flies in the face of our current thinking about standing up for your rights. Why? Why is Christ asking us to do this? Firstly, because this is what He is like, who sends the rain to shine, uh, the, the rain to fall on the on the on the good and on the evil, and the sun to shine likewise on all people. And also because we are called to be free from the drive to get even, to get our own back, to take revenge, entrusting ourselves instead to Christ where we find our peace. Also because our living of this grander vision may just cause someone to be ashamed of their behavior and repent. Let me just make clear that that we are called to resist evil, by the way, in ourselves. I'm called to resist the evil in me. Let me make some disclaimers here. I don't think this is referring to letting ourselves be walked all over or used as doormats. So what's the difference? I believe that doing that is giving in from a place of weakness, from a place of fear. But what we see in St. Paul and what we see in Christ is a place of strength. They're not giving up their rights because they're afraid of confrontation insecure about what they have the right to, or worried about rocking the boat, or worried about what other people think. They choose to love. Perhaps advice to some people who are naturally fearful would be to show a bit more assertiveness first. I'm not, I'm not sure. It's something to get some pastoral counsel on. Uh, or in the words of Christian writer John Eldridge, you have to have a cheek before you can turn it, right? I'm also not talking about situations where people are in abusive relationships. The advice in those cases would not be the same. And again, I would advise spiritual and professional counsel. What I am talking about is having a certain mindset in the everyday situations that we find ourselves in because I think that this can play itself out in very concrete ways. Maybe we're not at the stage of giving in to evil people, right? But it might be where you have the right to spend your money on yourself and on your comforts, but you choose to live more simply in order to give more money to the poor or to the church. Where you have the right to give yourself some time off to do whatever you want, but you choose to give some time to that friend who needs someone to talk to or to hang with, or you choose to spend time with that child who really wants to spend some time with you. You have the right to give your opinion, but you choose not to, because it's not what's called for in a particular situation. Or a friend or a family member has messed up and you have the right to really sink the boot in, right? To really give a massive I told you so. But you choose not to because you see how cut up they are already without you wading in with your two cents worth, right? On the matter. Now, nowhere do we see the command to not grasp for what we think we are owed more clearly in the matter of forgiveness and this is where we see the relevance to the gospel today just prior to the gospel reading the lead up to this parable saint peter has just asked jesus how often should i forgive up to seven times he wants to know where the line is right so that you can just walk right up to that line and don't cross it right i've done my bit uh and jesus isn't going to play that game right he says not seven times but 77 times, right? Sometimes translated as 70 times 7, right? He's not giving a specific figure. He's giving a hyperbolic number to say an uncountable number of times in the same way that we might say millions or billions nowadays. So in this story, the master was owed 10,000 talents. We just need a parishioner with some... uh, assistance here. Any doctor in the room? Um, just find where I was up to. Okay, so I was saying that the master was owed 10,000 talents. Uh, and in the New Testament, a talent was a unit of monetary reckoning, about 6,000 drachmas. So a talent wasn't a coin in itself. It was the equivalent of about 20 years' wages for a laborer. So, one talent is reckoned to be, according to the ESV study Bible, about 600,000 US dollars, right? So, 10,000 talents is about 6 billion US dollars or 9 billion Australian, right? An astronomical amount of money. And often when people tell this story, they make the contrast, and rightly so, between the extreme amount of money the king forgave and the comparatively lesser amount owed to the servant by his fellow servant, right? And it is true, and we should draw from this the message of how much God has forgiven us. But there's an interesting detail here, and I think this is the the genius in this story, and that is that the amount the servant is owed by his fellow servant is not insignificant. It's still 100 denarii, which is about 12,000 U.S. dollars. It's not nothing. It's not like he's just being stingy because he's owed like two cents, right, by his fellow servant, and he couldn't forgive such a pitiful amount. It still is something, and it still would hurt to forgive it. And this is how we feel too when it comes to forgive. We believe we have the right to hold on to what people have done to us, not because we're stingy and we want to hold on to it, but because it was so damaging, because it was so hurtful it's not nothing and it wouldn't be a sacrifice if it was easy and we see that there was nothing easy about Christ's sacrifice for us Christ wants us to move from being exacting cold and calculating with our love and our forgiveness grabbing at what we believe we have the right to because that is far from what he is like how does he bless us and love us We read in Psalm 22 or 23 in the Hebrew reckoning, my cup overflows. You know, he doesn't just fill it up just to a certain amount and, okay, that's enough, it's full. It overflows, right? How does he forgive us? By running out to meet us and embracing us and dressing us in a fine robe and preparing a feast. He wants us also to have such a tender-hearted love that we are happy to forego rights for other people. And that we are quick to forgive being ever mindful of how much we have been forgiven c.s lewis puts it this way i can forgive the unforgivable because god has forgiven the unforgivable in me and this is a way to freedom when we hold on to what we think we are owed what we think people ought to give us how people ought to treat us it brings much anxiety and turmoil into our hearts often we hold on to these things because of our pride and our ego our refusal to humble ourselves, our forgetfulness of how much mercy God has shown to us, and our lack of trust in God who said that He would vindicate us and look after us. Ultimately, we are either being remade in the image of Christ who forsook what was due to Him, or we will be remade in the image of the devil who believed he had the right to the glory of the Trinity. St. Paul and Christ humbled themselves and did not make full use of what they could have legitimately held uh, legitimately held onto. And may we do the Rejoice same
1: the name of the a cross, trophy of the truth.